This episode is presented by Wild Dunes Resort, a resort unlike any other. Wild Dunes offers something for everyone. Award-winning golf, tennis, pickleball, and sparkling pools, delicious on-site dining, and memorable outdoor adventures. Located just outside Charleston in beautiful Isle of Palms, South Carolina, Wild Dunes offers 36 holes of signature golf designed by Tom Fazio. The Lynx course was Fazio's first solo design and is still among his favorites today. From the rustling palms lining the rolling fairways to a finishing hole overlooking the glistening Atlantic, the Lynx course is South Carolina golf at its finest. The Harbor Course, another of Fazio's gems known for its challenging design, beautiful views, and most of all, water. From lagoons and salt marshes to the intracoastal waterway, this course will test all aspects of your game. Whether it's an afternoon golf outing or a week-long excursion, you will enjoy every minute of your golf vacation at Wild Dunes Resort. Learn more about Wild Dunes at wilddunes.com. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I am Al Lunsford, digital editor for Lynx. Joined as always by Joe Passoff. Uh, pleasure to be joined today by World Golf Hall of Famer Nick Price. Nick, how are you doing today? Very good. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having us on the card. Absolutely. Well, People know your name, obviously. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since you stopped playing the game of golf as well, um, at least professionally. Uh, and let's get started with the project that you're you're currently working on that currently has been announced uh, down in Florida uh, called Soleta. Uh, can you give us some details about this new project and what to expect? Sure. Yeah, it was something David Ledbetter uh it came to me with a while back, uh, probably about a year, maybe 14 months ago, along with our good friend, Alan Pope, who's on the line with us now as well. But um, the project's about uh, 22 miles. It's like, I think, 30 minutes just uh, due east of Sarasota. Um, we've got, uh, I think it's 580 acres. Uh, we've got a beautiful piece of property that's surrounded by natural Florida upland. Um, which has scrub oaks, a lot of live oaks, a lot of indigenous uh, uh, plants in there, which we're going to use and enhance as much as we can on the golf course. Um, a lot of sand uh, in, in, on the golf course, which is really good for drainage. Um, it's a project, uh, approximately 100 home sites, which are all on the northern perimeter of the property. Uh, and we've left golf alone so let's say that there's not going to be any houses or condos on most of the golf holes well on i think there's only three holes where we're actually going to see uh, the houses um so we've got 15 holes that are going to be you know pretty much intimate out there a little bit separated from the others um we uh the golf course is is going to be a nice mix um of you know long holes short holes shortish holes um, I've always been a big believer the longer the hole, the bigger the green, the more you allow a person to run the ball in, the shorter the club, the smaller the green, and maybe a little more severe the penalty. Um, but, but it's a golf course that's going to have no roughs. Um, it's going to be uh, all fairway, you know, fairway, and then transitioning into these native areas, which will be sand, uh, sand, and also uh, uh, landscaping. Um, you know, we've got a really good budget. We're going to move, I don't know, anywhere from, I would think, 700 to a million one cubic yards of dirt, uh, which is going to allow us to really get the water to drain properly, which is 
or to drain well, which is, you know, obviously job one in Florida, you've got to get the water moving off. And it's also going to give us a really nice opportunity to create some undulation and some relief to the property. Um, you know, not probably as much water on this golf course as people may see in uh, on uh, other Florida golf courses. The other thing that we're going to do is um, what we call informal tees. Uh, so we won't have like four, five, six sets of tees that are independent from each other. Um, we're going to do a wraparound of these tees. Uh, some of them will be like a J shape, which will allow us to create different angles, particularly on the par threes, which is, uh, you know, we move the tee from, you know, 30 meters or 30 yards left to 30 yards right, uh, which does increase the, uh, the shot variety, I suppose, and, and the angles on, on the par threes. And we'll do it on the par fours too, you know, a lot of the par fours. But a free form tee is something that uh, I've really enjoyed. It's something that goes back to, you know, the old Lynx courses back in the past. A lot of them didn't have formal tees. In fact, St. Andrews, you used to walk off with whatever green you were playing and just teared up where you wanted and off you went. Um, so uh, it, it really gives a lot of variety for the, the, you know, the, shot, um, the shot choices that you'll have out there. But all in all, uh, you know, a good piece of property, really nice piece of property. Uh, uh, and you know, we've, anytime you're in Florida, you start with a blank canvas. Uh, we have to create any sort of relief to the property. Uh, but it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun so far, and we're not too far away from breaking ground. When you saw the property, did it remind you of any other golf course property that you had seen before? Something not, in your mind's eye that you could compare it to? Um, not really. I think you know I've done three or four in Florida now, and you know pretty much what you're going to get. What we really have that's nice on this property, which I haven't seen on a lot of other properties. Well, not as often is that uh, upland, that uh, natural upland, which, uh, as again, you know, it's 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 hard to find any kind of upland in Florida because we are so low. Um, but it so it, it it circles the periphery of the golf course, um, and there's probably six or seven holes that will be cut through um, this this upland. So that makes it a you know, a little, uh, a lot different to, you know, many golf courses because most of the golf courses in Florida, as we know, are built on, on not wetland, but very wet land, you know. I know you mentioned a lot of things about the property and forgive me if you did say it, but there's also going to be a massive 30 acre uh, practice facility uh, yeah. that David Ledbetter is leading there as well, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, uh, you know, we've, we've, We've discussed over the years, David and I, and many of you may know that, you know, we've worked together since uh, the early 80s. And uh, we always came up with what we thought we, we, every every year when, we, we you know, you, you talk about perfect practice facilities. Uh, people love to practice and practice facilities in the past 10, 15 years have really got better and better and better. Uh, we have a you know ver variety of shots in the short game area, perhaps different types of grasses. Um, obviously, elevation changes on these you know uh, uh, short in the short game area. You may have two or three greens. I'm not sure exactly uh, what David's got in mind just yet, but um, he's gonna. It's going to be as comprehensive as you possibly will be able to find because David spends most of his life on the golf, not on the golf course, but on the range. And so, you know, we we'll, we always discussed what's the perfect range. 
what angle, how many angles do you have? You know, can you hit north, south, east, and west? Um, you know, you, you always want to practice into the wind. Most uh, good players want to practice into the wind. Uh, unless you get a little older, then you want to practice downwind because you need a little bit of help. But for, for most of us, we try and practice into the wind. And then you need to practice left to right, right to left, in, down, whatever it may be. Um, and varying that practice. So that's also built into this or factored into this whole uh, practice facility that David's building. And that's what's so good about it. It's the size. Um, you know, it's not going to be cramped. Uh, I think it's 400 yards from back of one tee to the back of the back of the west tee to the back of the east tee. Um, and, the, and the width of the tees, uh, or the length and the width of the tees is very generous. So a uh, lot of time for that grass to rejuvenate or to regrow. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just going to be a lot of fun. So everything that we're doing with this project, Al, is uh, uh, as, as five stars we possibly can. Uh, now, obviously, we, we don't have rock features and we won't have waterfalls like so many people on, on golf courses these days. But for Florida, this is going to be a wonderful project. And you said you're about to commence construction. When about what's the timeline for the project? Well, we're just waiting for our permits right now. Um, so you know, it could be any day. Now, as soon as we get the permits, we'll get the wheels in motion, and uh, we've got a, a construction group that we've used before, Jose and his gang. Um, they're phenomenal. Um, uh, so everything's in place. We're just waiting for the permitting. Like a lot of projects uh, are, not not a lot of projects, but like you know, a few projects in Florida are right now. How did your design career start? Uh, what what sparked your interest in specifically the this side of golf and and building golf courses? Well, I think all of us. You ask any golfer, they 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 always fancy themselves as a as a designer. And what you would do in a piece of property, if you looked at it, and it's funny if you look at the same piece of property and you get 20 guys looking at it you'll get 20 different interpretations of it um, and that's the fun thing about architecture there's no written rules in architecture um, i think if you are an architect you look more upon the beauty of the golf ball and what it does to the eye and sometimes the architects forget that you know 15 handicappers have to play that hole and whereas i think for, for me i design a golf hole not only to look uh, pretty and beautiful and to be framed properly, but also so that the average guy and gal can play it. That's the whole thing. Um, you know, most of the people, 95% of the people that play on any golf course are, you know, maybe eight handicaps and above. So um, I always sort of target my middle tees for players that are, say, exactly from eight to about 16 handicap because that's where the majority of your golfers are. So, you know, uh, it, it's just for me, going back and having played in all the programs over the years, you get to see what really hurts an amateur golfer, uh, forced carries, too much water, um, you know, not enough margin for error on the green. Uh, let's say, for example, the green's too shallow and you're hitting in a seven or an eight iron and the average guy can't stop the ball. So you, you give the average person a little more room to do that. But, but also having gone all around the world, you know, played, you know, all the great links courses, Ireland and Scotland, in the ones in England as well, the Heathland, the inland courses in England, um, the great courses in Australia. You know, we had a lot of wonderful courses in Southern Africa where we grew up because they used a lot of the old English and Scottish architects back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. 
But I think more than anything else, golf over here for the longest time was one dimensional in that it was about throwing darts. The greens were soft, the fairways were soft, very lush and whatever. And I've always been a believer in bringing the bounce back into the game. And all the courses that I've done, I've tried to get the courses firm and fast where the ball releases. Because you always got to remember golf's two games. It's a game in the air and a game on the ground. And the only game on the ground we had for the longest time over here in the States was on the greens. And when you were chipping and running the ball up around the greens. Well, you play all those great old Lynx courses and the, the, the Heathland courses in, in England. And, uh, and the ball bounces. That's what it does. You use the contours of the land to either help or to hurt the player, depending on how greedy they're trying to be off the tee and how much they risk rewarding, as to use a phrase. But um, to me, bringing the bounce back into the game is, is really important. And we've seen in years, you know, now the Gil Hans and, and Bob, uh, Ben Crenshaw and uh, Bill, Bill Core, they've done that a lot. A lot of the guys are trying to do of bringing that back into the game where it's not just about just watching the ball go out in the fairway and just stop stone dead. Uh, getting run on the ball is a great thing. And uh, I think we've been too fixated about green and everything must be green. Well, you can still have a course that's green, but it can be firm and fast. So uh, that's more of my design philosophy. And very old school, traditional, you know, as I said, the smaller the green, you know, the, the, the smaller, the, the shorter the hole, the smaller the green, or the shorter the second shot or the tee sh the, on the par three, you know, the more uh, smaller, maybe more penalizing the green. And then as you get into the longer holes, making sure people can al allow people to run the ball onto the green because, um, you know, hitting the ball straight, this game's hard enough. If you hit it straight, there should be some kind of reward there for you, not just going straight into the water hazard in front of you. So that's what I'll do and the angles that I try and do as well, Al, is that, you know, you increase the angles for the better players. So, you know, if you have a look on a dog leg right, you know, you'll put the, the, the championship or the, or the pros tees back on the right-hand side. So they have more of an angle into that dog leg right. And then as you come down toward your higher handicaps and your ladies, you'll straighten it out and they'll go straight down the fairway. So um, all these little things I, I've learned over the years, 39 years of playing pro-ams on Wednesday and having four partners, you learn a lot. Yeah. Hearing you say that makes it interesting how you talked about the, like the J shaped T's at, at Soleta that you're implementing. Um, I know you, you talked about some of the courses that influenced your philosophy and your design. And I know Joe maybe wanted to ask about some of sure. those specific places, right? Well, yeah, Nick, um, I mean, at, at at whatever age, whether you were a junior player or uh, just early on in your professional career, was there a golf course that you saw and you played that really made an impression, you know, that said, wow, um, this is how good golf courses can be. And uh, what what do you remember about some of those really early influences and, and how do they affect you? Well, you know, growing up in what was Rhodesia, our golf courses were pretty much all the same. They were built on fairway grade. The rings were on fairway grade. Um, we didn't have irrigation on our golf courses. So in wintertime, when it got dry and we didn't have any rain, um, you know, on a par four that you would be, hit, you'd be hitting a six iron in, in in summertime, you would be hitting a nine iron in in wintertime. And you'd have to pitch the ball 
you know, five, 10, 15 yards short of the green and run it in. So uh, again, it brought that bounce back into the game. Um, and as, you know, things progressed in Africa and Southern Africa, when we got more, when we got irrigation, the grasses changed, the design of the golf courses had to change. But, um, you know, the old traditional where you, where you have the green at fairway grade, um, you, you only get that when you have fantastic subsoil like you do on the links courses or, you know, if you have really a great sand, sandy subsoil like uh, in the Melbourne, the sand district or the, in, 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 in uh, Melbourne and Australia and in other parts of the world. So, um, you know, I would say when I started traveling, I really got a great taste for golf courses. And in my first five or six years as a pro, I went from Australia to Asia, Japan, uh, Scotland, Ireland. I played all over the place. And I played a bit of a handful of golf in America, but mainly as a junior. But I suppose uh, the first time I got to St. Andrews, I, I really had no idea what I was in for. And, you know, um, I, the first couple of holes we played there, we, we, I'm saying to this buddy of mine, I'm saying, well, I say, what's the big deal about this golf course? But it grew on me over a period of time. But, you know, I have three really, really great golf courses that I would, if I had to play only three courses the rest of my life, it would be these three. And not necessarily in this order, but Muirfield in Scotland, I think, was an absolute, it's a stroke of genius. It's probably, and it has been changed over the years. So it wasn't built like that initially. Um, I can't remember the dates when it was changed, where, where guys, you know, sort of um, improved on it. But Muirfield in, in Scotland is one of my all-time favorites. And then Kingston Heath in Australia, which is in the Sandbelt, uh, is also a gem. You know, Royal Melbourne and Commonwealth and, and Huntingdale and all those other courses get so much more or not notoriety. But Kingston Heath is, um, is, is, is one of the best that I've enjoyed. And, and, you know, I look at the shot variety, Joe. I look at what irons you're hitting in. You know, are you how much are they forcing you to do something or are there options on a golf course? And then the third one's Pine Valley. I think uh, every architect worth his weight in salt would, would give his eye teeth to get a piece of property like that to build a golf course on. Well, those are three pretty inspired choices. Some good <laughs> yeah. variety in there, especially. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, the bunkering... Uh, at Kingston Heath, what they did with a small, pretty flat piece of property yeah. uh, absolutely inspired many, many architects, including Gil Hans, uh, right. who gave me a similar answer uh, not long ago. So, you know, you talk about having to acclimate to the old courts at St. Andrews yep. and almost a one-off, even within many links courses. Um, and then Bobby Jones and Alistair McKenzie came along. Uh, Mackenzie practiced pretty well in the sand belt um, in mm -hmm. Australia. Um, and and they did Augusta National trying to emulate what they could from the old course at St. Yeah. Andrews. What do you take in terms of how you played the game, how you design courses that comes from the old course and Augusta National? What do you see in them from a design standpoint? Well, Augusta is so modern when you look at you know, golf courses and you start looking at, you know, Muirfield or St. Andrews or any of those uh, old courses that were built, you know, in the dunes. Um, you know, Augusta is a, uh, it's such a beautiful place to play golf. It really is. Uh, but 
you know, it's manicured. It's manicured to the nth degree. And, you know, the, the links courses, which are on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you hit it in divots, you get sandy lies, you get little cuppy lies, you know, there's all, there's a big difference between those two types of golf. Which one is better? I'm, I, I enjoy both of them. I'm not going to say one's better than the other. Uh, but I certainly enjoy playing Lynx golf because it just gives you so much more variety. That's the big thing. You know, it's very hard to run the ball into those greens at Augusta or any other modern day course for that matter. I think there was a period that, you know, uh, we sort of went through where it was, it, it, everything was about carry, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the par fives at Augusta, well, certainly number two and number uh, eight, you can run the ball in. But most of Augusta is about carry, whereas, you know, St. Andrews is about pitching the ball 30 yards short of the green. Which one, again, I'll go back to which one I prefer. Um, I've won on both types of golf courses in my career, and I enjoy both types of golf. Um, but I would love to see our newer courses over here be a, have a little more uh, run and bump and run and have options from around the green. So it's never just pull out a 60 degree sandwich or whatever it is you can putt it you can use a seven iron and chip and run it or you can use a hybrid or a three wood or whatever you want uh, i love those mown areas, closely mown areas around greens um, sometimes i think the architects have been a little severe with the amount of slope because the ball will run off and go 30 40 yards away from the green which is fine if you do if, if you if you know professionals are the only ones that are going to play there but when you've got 16 handicappers and they hit a pretty good shot and it goes over the back of the green, last thing I want to do is have a 40-yard shot back from there. So, you know, there's little – and, you know, just to go back to a point, Harry Colt, who was one of my favorite designers of all time, architects, um, the subtlety that he built in his golf courses was something to, to be revered, to be honest. I think his subtlety, um, you know, with the – Sunningdale, just so many of the courses that he did, I absolutely loved. And um, especially around the greens where he would do these little cuppy areas or these little small runoffs where it wasn't a full shot penalty. It was a half shot penalty. You now had to hit a really good shot to get it up and down, but you weren't going to make a double bogey because you've missed the green by five yards. So um, uh, he, he's one of my favorites. But I guess design philosophy comes from... Uh, I don't want to say what's fair, but if a person hits a seven or a six, six, seven iron uh, out of 10 shot to an, a green, then I don't believe they should be making a double bogey. Now, if they hit a one or a two, then it's really bad. That's a different game, ball game altogether. So uh, my, my, my pet peeve, and I love Sawgrass TPC. That was one of my favorite golf courses of all time. I, I played so well there, but I hated that 17th hole because there is zero strategy at all on that golf hole and that's what we i think all golfers we play golf uh, strategically we know that if we hit it over here we're going to have a harder shot coming in from this angle if we hit it over here we're going to have an easier shot so strategy to me is everything in a, in a golf hole in a golf course if that might be your least favorite hole in the world um, <laughs> then what would you consider your favorite to be that's a very good question there's so many. Oh, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, you know, Turnberry has some beautiful, beautiful golf holes out. And, and I haven't played there since they've redone it. Unfortunately, I haven't been over there. But, uh, you know, some of the views there, Pebble Beach has incredible views, Cypress Point. 
um, you know, you look at all those golf courses and, and it's funny because a lot of those holes on those golf courses, if you took them and put them inland, they wouldn't get near the notoriety that they do by being with the fantastic views there. So, um, you know, anytime you have the dunes and you have beautiful blue ocean as a backdrop, um, it certainly helps. But um, I, 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 it's hard for me to put one, pick one out of, of all time. You know, Pine Valley has some fantastic holes as well. The 18th hole there, um, 17. There's just so many great holes there. 14 is, is, a, is a beautiful hole. So. This episode is presented by Wild Dunes Resort. A resort unlike any other, Wild Dunes offers something for everyone. Award-winning golf, tennis, pickleball, and sparkling pools, delicious on-site dining, and memorable outdoor adventures. Located just outside Charleston in beautiful Isle of Palms, South Carolina, Wild Dunes offers 36 holes of signature golf designed by Tom Fazio. The Lynx course was Fazio's first solo design and is still among his favorites today. From the rustling palms lining the rolling fairways to a finishing hole overlooking the glistening Atlantic, the Lynx course is South Carolina golf at its finest. The Harbor course, another of Fazio's gems known for its challenging design, beautiful views, and most of all, water. From lagoons and salt marshes to the intracoastal waterway, this course will test all aspects of your game. Whether it's an afternoon golf outing or a week-long excursion, you will enjoy every minute of your golf vacation at Wild Dunes Resort. Learn more about Wild Dunes at wilddunes.com. Well, you mentioned Turnberry, and that's obviously a big part of the fabric of your uh, professional playing career and uh, so much success that year. It really, in like a two-year stretch, it, I mean, you were kind of unconscious. Can you put us in your, in your mind <laughs> at, at that point in time and uh, <laughs> just how you approach playing the game of golf? <laughs> I like the word unconscious, but no, I, I, uh, I had such great focus at that time. And, you know, um, I've been pretty much a journeyman, journeyman my whole career. I think I'd probably won eight or 10 tournaments worldwide going into 1991, which was when the floodgates opened. Um, I got squeaky meddling on the bag. who was a huge asset to me. We, he and I formed a partnership and a friendship and a, and a business, uh, you know, just a strategy on the golf course that it just got better and better and better. And, uh, and as I started getting more and more confident, uh, I don't know what that multiplier is when you win your first major for some people, it might be a multiplier of three other people. It's 10, some are 20 confidence wise. For me, it was a huge confidence booster. So, um, you know, that's what really got, it kicked me off was when I won that first major because it just, it just takes that monkey off your back, you know, it, 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 and, and I feel for guys, you know, like Tommy Fleetwood at the moment and, and, and also, you know, Ricky Fowler and some of the other guys who haven't won majors yet, because um, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's very frustrating, especially when you're a player of, you know, someone like Tommy Fleetwood's uh, ability and, and Ricky Fowler. But, um, you know, I, I, I caught lightning in a bottle. That's what I'd like to say more than anything else. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I made it last for about a four or five year period, which uh, was having not been there before was very difficult because I didn't know how to handle all this media attention. And if I look back on, I had a tough time saying no. Uh, and if I look back on that time, I think I probably would have extended 
that patch of my career had I said no a little more often. But uh, I, I was run thin on many, many areas and sides and uh, not, not to anyone's fault, but just from my own experience of being there. And if you remember, and Tiger, when he started out, he said, these are the interviews I'm going to do during a week or whatever. Now, obviously, is a whole different kettle of fish to me, but to what I had. But uh, I, through that period of that four or five years, it was it was very tough for me. And I'll, I wish I'd managed my time better. Well, I'm a little older than Al, and I remember your heyday very well, uh, Nick. <laughs> so, I was um, conscious. No, Joe, I was conscious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we we actually uh, used to remark on um, the fact that you were number one in the world and and had made some curious decisions about which equipment to play uh, indoors. Yeah. And, and thinking that, I mean, you know, it was still good money uh, to be able to sign a contract and know you had the security. But... Uh, a few of us uh, were kind of on the sideline going, sure. well, if you would, yeah, if you would actually pick the very best that was available, you would have been light years ahead of some of your contemporaries yeah. in results. Do you ever think back about as awesome as it was what could have been? Well, you know what happened during those periods? I still used my old clubs, the clubs that I'd used to get me there because I had it built into every one of those contracts. That unless the clubs that I was signing with outperformed mine, they weren't going to go in the bag. Ah, so, okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's the thing. I may have had the golf bag and whatever. But I'll go back to the Atragon thing. You know, Atragon, they, the, the, the whole idea with there was a fusion of the metals and, and the carbon and the graphite. Exactly what every driver is made out of today. Today. Is what yeah. Those guys had then. The only thing is, the technology was not nearly as good, nor obviously they didn't have as much money to have the engineers and, you know, maybe some of the aerospace guys who had all of that had dealt with titanium and that. But that was in 1996, I believe it was, 95, 96. So that was before guys had even thought about combining the titanium and, and graphite. But anyway, I think all that time what ends up happening is that you're looking for an opportunity where you can make some really good cash. And if I could have done that in a perfect world to have made that equipment uh, and been able to use it and, you know, go public with the company, we all would have made a lot of money. We didn't make the kind of money that the guys are making today. So we were trying to figure out a way as to how we could, you know, make money. Obviously, Greg Norman had made that money out of Cobra when they sold to uh, American brands. Uh, and he did very well because I think that thing traded at about 18 times earnings, which was, you know, un unheard of almost in those days. But that's what we were trying to do, you know. And uh, the manufacturers, there was a time where I think a lot of players – you know, to go corporate, you got more money doing corporate bags, um, you know, having uh, corporate logos, because the golf companies didn't have that much money in those days. And that's why we all did it, you know, to, to we did to that corporate. And, and all we're trying to do is make the most amount of money that we can, given the opportunity we have, you know. So just like the guys today, although, you know, I would have liked to have been born about 20 years later, because these guys are making <laughs> a boatload of money now. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, no question. Uh, it's easy to look back in hindsight, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and go down that road. But, um, you know, Nick, you know, I, I saw some, a little clip yesterday about our U.S. amateur champion, uh, uh, Nick Dunlap from Alabama, who just lipped out for 59 at Maidstone yesterday during a college tournament. These young guys are off the charts, crazy good. Uh, I mean, not just how far they hit it, but how they get in the hole and go low. So you talked about it uh, a little bit earlier here, but in terms of uh, even with Saleta, for instance, but how do you design a golf course in this day and age that keeps the 8 to 16 handicapped golfers happy, but can still offer a test, at least a test for the, for the young guys that are coming out playing the way they do. You know, uh, 76, 7,700 yards, you know, that's where you've got to be now. Um, not a lot of properties have enough room to build a golf course that that's long. That's that long. Um, you know, I think ours is probably going to top out. I think it's 7,350, but if we move the T, pins all the way back and the tee all, all the way back, we'll probably get to close to 7,500. Um, but I, I think, you know, your difficulty, you do, you, you, you make it in angles. But when the, you see a guy, you know, I mean, I honestly believe on the PGA Tour now in professional golf, there's no such thing as a par five because the guys are hitting a drive and a hybrid or an iron to a 630, 640 yard par five. So you know, maybe the PGA Tour should just do away with par fives and just have no such, which would be a very sad day, trust me. But, uh, you know, it's, I think it's almost impossible to do that unless you have the room. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I look at my course, MacArthur here, which is the same sort of yardage, 7350. And, you know, the guys come out there and they, they go low all the time. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying to say to the members, I said, don't even worry about it. You know, this is it's a different game for these guys. I think if you look at what a five handicap club player was or four handicap club player 40 years ago, his game wasn't too dissimilar to a top amateur or, a, or an average pro. Now it is they are poles apart. I mean, the average guy cannot relate to how far some of these youngsters are hitting the ball today. They hear this. That went 365. Then you tell them, well, our seventh hole, that means he's chipping back to the green. He says, oh, my God, I didn't realize it's that long. You know what I'm saying? So yep. uh, we'll make it a good test. We will make it a really good test for, for, for the uh, lower handicap. Uh, uh, but, you know, unless we could get it to 77,000, 7,700 yards, it would be very difficult. You don't have to worry about me. I'm, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to be just fine on whatever course you lay out. Yeah. So. Well, just to give you an idea, it. I'm hitting the ball probably as far as I far now as I was when I was in my late twenties and early thirties. So it just gives you an idea. And and although I do work out, it's not enough to get the ball that far. The equipment has really changed the whole dynamic of the game. Well, we'll look forward to following along. Appreciate your time today. It's been uh, thanks. Been fun to chat. Yeah, and I uh, hope we see you out at Saleta when we're all done and open. Sounds good. Once we have an official open date, uh, we'll be sure to let the people know as well on our end. Terrific. Thank you.